This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Kyle Colbertson. I am the pastoral intern here at Trinity Church, uh, and it is just a blessing and just exciting to be able to continue on in our sermon series in the book of Zechariah. Uh, we're in Zechariah chapter 6 this morning. We're entering the end of all of these visions that we've been talking about these last couple weeks that are a little bit odd, a little bit weird. Um, if you've not been with us, there's the beginning of Zechariah starts off with God giving eight dream visions to the prophet Zechariah for his people. And the summary of all of these visions is essentially God is coming back to dwell with his people. He's cleansing them and he's casting off all of their sin. The exile is over and they're going to be with him once again. The kingdom is coming. And as we jump into this eighth and final vision, as well as this little sign act that we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, we're going to see this exciting news of the coming kingdom. And as we were thinking, I was thinking about this this morning, I wanted us to start picturing and thinking about what it means to receive good news. What does it look like to get something that is just great news in your life? And so in my life, this is something that I couldn't really think of, um, but it's something that I see all the time in my daughter. Uh, Ellie Joy is two and a half years old, and so unlike me, she feels the freedom to express the fullness of her emotions. And the most exciting thing that has ever happened to Ellie Joy in her life is the presence of what she calls the ice cream bus. The ice cream truck drives through our neighborhood at our house every Friday. It comes every single time. It knows to stop by our house now. Um, but she knows the sound. She knows the music. She will do whatever she's doing. It doesn't matter. If she hears that tune, she will drop whatever it is, yell out, ice cream bus, and she will visibly shake with excitement because this is the pinnacle of her life, is the ice cream bus. And the excitement that she expresses in this good news is one that just shows that she knows what's coming. She can't see it yet, but she hears the sound. She knows what's going to happen. And this is the excitement that we would be seeing in these people in Zechariah. This is the excitement of these news of the coming kingdom, because these are a people that have been without God for 70 years in exile. These are people that have not experienced his presence. They've heard time and time again that eventually this will come. And now they're seeing the inbreaking. They're seeing this news once again that Zechariah says the kingdom is at hand. It's exciting news. Hope is building. The anticipation of the kingdom is exciting. And it's not just exciting for them, but it's exciting for us. And so I hope that as we look through this chapter this morning, I pray that it's our, a revival of our own excitement, that as we look on Pentecost this morning, that we see the good news of the kingdom coming once again, and we see that it's good news for three reasons. We're going to see that it's good news because one, the king has been crowned. Two, it's good news because God's people are being gathered to build his temple. And three, it is good news because his army is ready. And so we're going to open Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 15 this morning. I invite you to stand with me out of reverence for the reading of God's word. In Zechariah 6, starting in verse 1, Again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven, after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. 
The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country, the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go and patrol the earth. And they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the word of the Lord came to me, take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade. May the Lord bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. Sorry, there's a lot of names in there that get me messed up. But we're going to skip through the first vision. We're going to come back to it at the end. We're going to jump down into verse 9, and we're going to see that the beginning of the good news is that the king has already been crowned. And this, it's through this sign act, which I mentioned a little bit ago. A sign act, if you don't know what it is, is simply think of it as a visual aid to prophecy. So it's not really this dream anymore. It's something that Zechariah is called to go and do just to give an example of what's going on, what God is actually saying. It's a visual representation. We've seen this through other prophets in eating of scrolls or the wearing of a yoke for oxen. And now it's this coronation ceremony. And so it's a little bit tricky to follow with the one crown, two crowns, which person we're talking to. So I'm just going to summarize it real quick. Basically, Zechariah shows up and he's told to go make two different crowns. And the first crown is to go to Joshua, the high priest. This is the same Joshua we met back in chapter 3. It's the one that was cleansed and reinstated as the high priest of God's people. And this crown for him is the culmination of that. This crown is the culmination that he is the one that is the high priest. He is the one to rule and reign over God's temple and his people. And yet there's a second crown made. And this second crown is not for Joshua. This second crown is rather for the one that is referred to as the branch. This branch is the Davidic king that has been missing. You see, if you've been around for, uh, I believe it was covered today in Theology Corner, or if you've been around when we talked about 2 Samuel, there is this promise, this covenant that God made with David all the way back in 2 Samuel 7, about 1000 BC. He made this promise that David, at all times, there will be a king of your descendants on my throne. So there's always supposed to be this Davidic king present. And yet, 500 years later, he's missing. 500 years later, even as the people are coming back to Jerusalem, even as the exile is ending, even as the priesthood has been reinstated, there's one big puzzle piece that's absent. There's no king. And this absence of the king would be felt by everyone. It would be a beacon showing all the other nations that Israel is still not back. That Israel is still not its own nation. It's not its own people. They're still missing their ruler. And so this is the good news of the branch. This is the good news that the branch is the Davidic king. He's coming back. And God reveals who this branch is, this one that's been prophesied about in Jeremiah. This branch right now is the one that is supposed to build the temple. 
And we know from earlier in Zechariah, we know from his counterpart Haggai, we know from history that the one who begins and builds this temple is none other than Zerubbabel. And now Zerubbabel is fit to wear this crown. He's not only fit to wear this crown and rule because he's got the coolest name in the kingdom, but he's fit to wear this crown because he's a son of David. He's from the line of kings. He is building the temple. He's doing the work of God. He is fit to wear the crown and to rule. And the good news is not just that he's fit to wear it, but that God is uniting him and Joshua. He's uniting these two crowns under one rule where the priest and the king can rule together. They're going to be unified in one one vision, one rule over the throne in the kingdom. There's two thrones ruling as one. See, this had been the problem with all the kings before him. All the kings that had failed in Israel were ones that forsook the temple. They didn't care about the priests or the prophets or about God. They wanted their own way, and it led to their destruction. But the good news is that now there's two crowns coming back to rule together. God is uniting the priesthood and the king. He's bringing the, the separation of church and state, and he's uniting them as one in his holy kingdom for his people in Jerusalem. And this is good news. But this good news doesn't always come to fruition. See, the problem with Zerubbabel as this king is the fact that we actually know from history that he never becomes a king. He never puts on this crown. He never ascends to be the ruler over God's people in this time. He's nothing more than a governor. And so we're left to wonder, and I'm sure other people were wondering too, did God's word fail? Has this promise of the kingdom fallen short? Has he forgotten about us? But we know that God's word does not fail. We know that while Zerubbabel is a branch, he's not the fulfillment of this office. He's not the branch with a capital B. He's not the one that is meant to be the king that fully unites everything. Because we know that on this side of history, we understand that this king came 500 years later. We know that this king showed up as one that would fully unite both the priesthood and the kingly office together, not only in one mind, but in one person. It's in one person in the Jesus of Nazareth, one who is the tribe of Judah, the line of David, and born in the town of Bethlehem. He's the one that we spoke of this morning in our catechism question, that he fulfills the office of priest, prophet, and king. And we think about these offices of priest and king, it's something that if you were to continue in the catechism, you would hear what that means. So 25 would tell you in the Westminster Shorter Catechism that he's a priest in his once offering up of himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God, and in making continual intercession for us. And 26 would say he's a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. This is what we would profess Christ as our Redeemer. He fulfills all of these things in priest and king, but the question is, do these truths matter in our daily life? Do we see God operating as both our priest and our king every single day? Because I think when we talk about Jesus, we're pretty quick to say he's our priest. We're pretty quick to admit that we are sinners. We're pretty quick to admit that he has saved us. He's atoned for our sin. We pray in his name because he's the one making intercession for us between the Father. We day to day understand our need for this priest. But what about the king? How often do we recognize this as something that we need? See, the problem is when we look at him as king, we are really quick to say it. But we're often, we don't think of him as any more than the king of England. If you know anything about the king of England, you would see the coronation that has just happened. It was beautiful. It was a fun day for everyone. They were very excited in England. But the reality is, how much does he actually influence their day-to-day life? 
You think about it, like what, if, what do they do when they need to send somebody to a G7 summit to just decide foreign policy? Do they send the king? No, no, no. We send the prime minister. Well, what about if we need to make rules? What if we need to establish rule and law? Do we look to the king to do it? No, no, no. That's what parliament's for. The reality is the king seems nothing more than a figurehead in their society. He's not affecting the day-to-day life of his people. And the problem is that this is something that we understand because if you remove him, they'd probably operate just fine. We saw this in the death of Queen Elizabeth that she should have rocked the country financially, legally, socially if she was actually the king or the queen ruling over the people. And while it might have sent emotional shockwaves through Twitter and the internet, ultimately, Great Britain did just fine. They continued along, rolled right on through, didn't miss a beat. Nothing was a problem. And for us, the reason we don't experience the fullness of the joy of the kingdom is that we don't understand Christ as our king even now. We aren't actually being ruled and subdued and defended by him every single day. We don't understand our need for him. We are so quick to praise him as our king in our songs or to say, uh, long live the king, as they would in England. Yet how often are we actually submitting to him? We give him our Sundays, but Monday to Saturday, that's my time. I am willing to say that Christ is my king, but he doesn't have control over my thoughts. Yeah, he can, have, he can be my priest because I need his forgiveness, but I'm not going to give him my life. I'm not going to give him my thoughts. I'm not going to allow him to complain and control my sexual identity, my relationships, my family, my money, my time. I'd rather edit and fit his word to fit my lifestyle because I want to be in charge. And I think we're all guilty of this. We all buck against this thought of being ruled and subdued by a king. We all bucket this thought of wanting this unification of state and church and life. See, it's something that even reading it this week, I read a commentary and it said that statement, the unification of church and state. And it really made me kind of flinch a little bit because that's not what we value. That's not something that I've been taught. That's something that, that goes against freedom. It goes against democracy. That's not something we want in America. You need these things. I don't want the combination of the two. But the reality is, while that is how we see Western society, that's not how we see when we're ruled by the true king of the universe. See, as those that are longing for a kingdom to come, we're not longing for freedom and democracy. We're longing for monarchy under this one true king. We're longing for the one that is going to rule properly over his people because he's the one that created them, he's the one that sustains us, and he's the one that redeemed us as our priest as well. See, we long for him to come because he's the only one that can conquer sin and he's the only one that can conquer death. He's the only one that can right all of our wrongs. He's the only one that can not only restrain, but he can defeat all of our enemies. See, the reality of the good news of the kingdom is that we know that it's already coming because we already know who the king is. See, while Israel was sitting there looking forward and hoping for this branch, hoping that Zerubbabel was the guy, we're looking back and knowing that the guy's already won. We know that Christ has already defeated all of our enemies, and one day he's going to come back and knock them all out for good. We know that this is good news, that the kingdom is coming because the king has already been named. We're already submitting to his throne. We're already being submitted to him, subdued to him. We're already being defended by him. We're already being <clears throat> excuse me, brought into his kingdom. We know the end, and we're just waiting on that moment. It's this escalation of anticipation. 
because we know who it is. But the, re the revealing of the king is not the only reason that we're excited about the kingdom. See, it gets even better when you read further down into verse 15. It says, And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. See, for Israel, this was the best part of the news. Because those that are far off are those that are still in captivity. Those that are far off are the ones still ruled by Babylon. They're the ones that are still being carried off as exiles. See, this, those that are far off being brought back means that we're becoming our own people. The exile is over. And that's what everyone there wanted. The time has ended. We can come back and build the temple of the Lord. God's bringing his people back, and it's wonderful news. And yet for us, on this side of it, it's even better news. Because just like Zerubbabel is nothing but a placeholder, this is nothing but a placeholder that sees its fruition in Christ. See, we read it in Ephesians chapter 2 in our New Testament passage this morning. And if you look at it again in verse 13, it says, But in Christ Jesus you were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Skipping down to 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, Paul is taking this passage and he's expanding upon it. He's expanding that those that are far off are not just the exiles, but it is the Gentiles. And this is the best part of the news for us because I would argue probably everyone in this room is not a Jew in exile, but rather a Gentile. And so the reality is that we can know who the king is, but if we're not actually included in the kingdom, it really is not that great of news for us. But the beauty is that we're all being brought back. We are all far off. We are all dead in our trespasses, and yet Christ has come to us and brought us back and is building us together into this glorious temple. He's bringing in Jew and Gentile together to make something magnificent, the temple where he can dwell by his spirit. Even though we were far off, we are brought new to become the body that is the church. See, we're built on Christ as the cornerstone. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and each of us are built together as a building block in this temple. And every piece of this temple matters because if you've ever built a building, you know that it's only as strong as the pieces that go into it. If you've got every piece and part in doing its work, it is something that builds not only in size but in strength. But if you've got pieces that are absent, if you've got pieces that aren't working together, they're not cooperating with the other ones, it's going to lead to cracks, fractures, and crumbling. And this is something I also experienced with my two-year-old because she loves building blocks. She actually wants me to build ice cream buses and towers and school buses, and all of which is for her little figurine, Mary. And yes, this is the Mary from our nativity scene last Christmas. Point of contention in our house, but we're not going to get into that now. This is her favorite thing, and she wants nothing more than Mary to have a place to sit inside of. And so she wants me to build this. Daddy, build a tower. Daddy, build a school bus. Daddy, build this. And you can be in the middle of building something, and it is going really well, but she has less patience than she does years on this earth. And so no matter where you're at in this, she might just scream out all of a sudden, wow, Daddy, Mary in it. And she'll run over, she'll pull a tile off, she'll put Mary inside and try to close it. But the problem for her is that she's so consumed with the thoughts of what she wants for Mary, she doesn't care about structural integrity, she doesn't care about where the tower's going, she doesn't care about where she's pulling from. 
And so almost every single time, she'll pull from one in the bottom and in the middle. And almost every single time, this tower will just crumble and fall around Mary. And it just ruins the entire piece to her dad's dismay. (laughs) See, but the same thing goes true with God's temple, with our church. Every piece matters. Every block is an important part, and it's something that is holding up the structural integrity of the church. We're being built together, but we are called to work to build this temple because each of us matters. But the problem is for many of us, we, like my daughter, let our own selfishness get in the way of what God's building. We are more concerned with our own thoughts and our own cares that we aren't able to build this body up in the way that God wants it to be done. We're not coming together and this iron sharpens iron. See, Israel was guilty of this too in this time. See, they were called to show back up to Jerusalem and build the temple. But it took them 15 years before they started again because they were too consumed building their own houses. They were too consumed making sure their stuff looked nice before they worried about the things of God. And I think for many of us, this is something that we still experience today. It's something that maybe it looks like a different aspect. Maybe for for me, it looks like a decision to skip a church service or a Bible study because something else feels more enjoyable to me than growing in the Word of God. Or maybe it's the fact that I know that God calls me to disciple and to train up my kids in His Word. Yet instead of reading the Bible with them, I'd rather turn on Daniel Tiger or read another Curious Curious George book. Or maybe instead it looks like the fact, excuse me, sorry, (laughs) it looks like not growing up our children, it's not doing these things, it's, sorry, that's that's why I bring coffee up. Or maybe it's because we know the people in our body need prayer. We know that there's so many people within our own church body that need prayer, they need outreach, they need help. And yet I can't be bothered to spend any more time in prayer because I'm too busy this week. I've got too much going on to deal with the discipling of my kids. I've got too much going on to deal with the needs of others in our community. I've got too much going on to pray for God's work to be done in his temple. And I think all of us can probably find some truth of that in our own lives. But before any of you think that I'm shaming you, each of these are an example from my own life this week. Each of these are an example that I have reflected upon and realized how I have not grown into or built the temple in the way that God has called. And something where I've refused to pick up the hammer because I want to do my own stuff. I want to do my own thing. I want to be building my own house rather than building the temple of God. We've all been this way. Israel is not alone. We've all been the consumeristic Christian that looks to church to check that box for this week or do something for us, fulfill us in our own life. But how much are we looking to build it up, to become those that serve one another, to become those that pray for one another, to become those that sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron, to be building up this body, this church that is meant for the kingdom, this temple that is going to be glorious, that is going to be established, that is going to live forever when the king finally shows back up. What would it look like for us to be praying for brothers and sisters each and every week? What would it look like to serve our community together each and every week? What would it look like to be what Paul is talking about here, to be built together into a temple by the Spirit of God? It would look a lot like the temple that's coming in the kingdom. And it's something that is glorious. It's something that sounds great even now, but it's something that is going to be seen in all fruition of the coming kingdom. And that's why it's good news. We've all been brought in. We've all been called to reflect on the fact that we were dead in our trespasses. We were far off. 
And the good news is we have been invited back in. We've been invited to come and pick up a hammer and build this temple, this church, together with one another by the Spirit of God. See, God's kingdom is coming. He is ready, but the question is, are his people ready for him? Because as we see in our final point this morning, God's army is ready. He is ready. His army is ready. He's waiting on his people. We see something in verses 1 through 8 that is one of the most beautiful parts of this whole passage. It's this chariot vision. If you remember back to the visions of Zechariah, these four chariots might remind you of the first vision in Zechariah chapter 1, when we saw four riders show up on horses. And they go and patrol the earth, and they come back and survey it and say, this is what's going on. The land is at peace. But now, instead of riders, we see chariots show up. And chariots are the ancient war, like tank or F-23 fighter jet. It is this incomparable fighting force. And so when these chariots show up, they're no longer the spy balloons that are going out to see what's going on. They're now showing up to destroy, to conquer, to defeat all of the enemies. They're going to go throughout all the earth just like the riders did, but they're not here to see what's going on. They're here to destroy it. They're here to destroy the enemies of Babylon. They're here to destroy all the enemies of God. They're here to make sure that nothing stands except for God, His Word, and His people. And we see them coming out from God's temple. We see them coming out because they're coming out from between these two mountains of bronze. And this is a cool picture because we don't necessarily understand what two mountains of bronze means, but if you were someone that had heard the stories of Solomon's temple in this time, you would have understood what this meant. You see, Solomon's temple, if you go back and read 1 Kings 6 and 7, is this magnificent building. It's this unbelievable construction project that is put together in all of the greatest things from around the world. Solomon is the richest individual that has ever lived and walked this face of the earth, and he has brought all of that riches into his temple and his palace as one of the ancient wonders of the world. And yet this temple was something that Solomon put two bookends on. In each side, on one on the north, one on the south, there was a giant pillar of bronze that you would walk by on your way into the temple every single day. And so for an Israelite, they would see, when you see these mountains of bronze, you'd understand that this is meant to signify this is where God is sitting. God is sending them out from his own dwelling place. He's sending them out from his own temple that is coming down in his kingdom. And it's even more unbelievable because you realize that even though Solomon in all of his riches made these pillars of bronze and they looked glorious, that they look terrible in comparison with a mountain of bronze, that this is how much greater God's kingdom is. This is how much greater it is that even the richest man that has ever walked the face of the earth pales in comparison. Anything that he constructs looks nothing more than a dilapidated shack in comparison with what God is bringing for his people when he shows up with his chariots. And the presence of these riders is fantastic with these chariot riders that show up to defeat all of God's enemies. But the coolest part about them, I think, is their attitude. You see it in verse 7 when it says they are impatient to go and patrol the earth. They are chomping at the bit to show up and to defeat all of God's enemies. And they're only waiting on one word. They're waiting for God to finally say, go patrol the earth. And in that one word, go, God is going to vanquish all of his enemies forever. God is going to establish his rule. The kingdom will be here and now for all of his people. See, Martin Luther talked about something. When he talked about the devil, he made this comment once, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word 
shall fell him. So our God is so powerful that it is just waiting on one word from his mouth and his kingdom will be established. That's how soon it's coming. It's simply waiting on one little word. These writers are chomping at the bit, and so should we. But the only reason we would not be chomping at the bit is because we've either lost sight of this temple and this kingdom that's coming because we think it's so far off in the distance. Or worse yet, we might have lost sight of the fact of how great this place is really going to be. We don't understand that it's better than anything we could ever experience. Since I was reflecting and thinking about this kingdom that's coming, this good news from Zechariah this week, I was reminded of a conversation I had with some friends in college. And there was one girl that was there at this conversation, and she made the comment that, yeah, I'm excited for Christ to come back, but I don't want him to come back before I get married. And I think if you've been in the church as long as I have, there's something that probably hits off in your head there of like, hey, you can think that, but you can't say that out loud. Like, no one's allowed to say that. But we all believe it in our hearts at different times. We think that, oh, this, this earth is so great. Like, God, yeah, come back, but like, maybe later. We all want him when we're in times of hardship. When we're struggling with things, we really want it. When we've got struggles of disease, we experience the loss of a family member. We experience this reality of death and sin in our lives. We're like, yes, Lord Jesus, come back. But what about when we're on the top of the world? What about when you're sitting on the beach with your family experiencing a beautiful sunset? What about on your wedding day or the birth of your child? These are days that are just the greatest that we could ever imagine. And yet the reality is there's a, great, a day that's coming that's even better. That these moments are nothing more than pillars of bronze that will be extinguished and made look pale in comparison to the mountains of bronze that are coming. Because God is not just coming to vanquish his enemies, but to unbound our joy. Our joy will never be these highs and lows. It'll be highs forever. Because that is the joy that's coming with these mountains of bronze. See, my wife Morgan and I just celebrated five years, our five-year anniversary last week. And I can honestly say that our wedding day was the best day of my life. And then yet I know that God's word is true, and so I know that he promises there's a day where there's going to be no more weddings. And the reason there's going to be no more weddings is because even a wedding day would feel like rubbish in comparison with the glory that we're going to experience in the coming kingdom. How amazing is that? Have you ever thought about this? the fact that your wedding day would be a buzzkill in heaven. Like that is incomparable to how great this kingdom is going to be. That the presence of God with us forever is going to be magnificent. That there will be no more enemies. There will be no more struggle. There will be no more pain. But there will also be unbounding joy that grows further and further in joy as we go on for eternity and there is no end. That is the good news of this kingdom. That is why we are called each and every day to Pray in the way that Christ told us to, to pray and cry out, thy kingdom come. Because we understand the good news of what it means for the kingdom to show up. That it is incomparable beauty, incomparable glory, incomparable, inconceivable riches that we are going to experience on this day as citizens of the kingdom, under the named king that we know, Christ Jesus our Lord, and in a land without enemies. We're simply waiting on that one word. And if we really look and spend time examining this kingdom and exciting ourselves in joy, we should respond to it, not as my friend in college, with apathy. But it should make us respond like a two-year-old waiting for the ice cream bus, shaking with excitement. And it should drive us to our knees praying, come, Lord Jesus, come. This is the good news of his coming kingdom. And this is the good news Zechariah brings to his people. Let's pray.
Yes, Lord Jesus, thy kingdom come. We ask that it would come quickly, Lord. We know that your riders are waiting. Your people are being gathered up even today. We see that your king has been crowned. We see that you have won the battles. You've won the victory. That you are even today restraining our enemies from us. And one day they're going to be fully conquered as you rule over all the nations, over all the earth, over all the world, over all of us. God, you will rule with us, that you will dwell with us as your citizens. We see everyone being brought back to build this temple, Lord, that we might look to you and your spirit to unite us, to drive us further into remembering what really matters, to not get lost in our own selfishness of our lives, but to be driven to you and your word, to be driven to you and your people, to be driven to see you glorified as our king. And might we be excited in this anticipation of the kingdom built more and more in our lives that we would cry out with excitement more than anything else on this earth, more than anything that an ice cream bus could ever be to a two-year-old because we understand that there is nothing on this earth that is more than a pillar of bronze standing and paling in comparison to the mountains of bronze that you're bringing with you. Lord, that we might hear that word go and we might see your kingdom established. Lord, might it all be something that we look forward to in exciting anticipation and might our hope be building each and every day as we cry out, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray as our King and our Redeemer. Amen.